0: Because it, it strikes me now, I'm, I'm a novice, uh, but it strikes me in thinking about this that, um, and again, uh, and the backdrop of cultural engagement is is that we get a lot of stories that are told to us in the culture. Now, now, I'm talking about written by anybody. I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. talking about written by a Christian. And the moral premise in the story is some form of. Declaration of Independence, if I can say it that mm-hmm. way, uh, some form of affirmation of a particular human practice or human condition or whatever that 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 uh, almost screams "I'm free." Um, and with a lack of accountability and a lack of uh, of groundedness in some cases, uh, again to create this view of a world that is both a reflection of the way many people will live, but also in some cases to create space. Mm-hmm so that people can live in places where they might not go otherwise. It seems to me that that's often the message that we're getting so that the challenge – I am wrapping this into a big question – but the challenge on the other end is to write as creatively, if I can use that word, and as effectively about a different kind of story with different kinds of moral premises.
1: Yeah. I think that, that, that that's our challenge is to find out – is to develop – a uh, what we try to do here in the program to develop a, a, a theological and biblical grid that allows you to not only, not only interpret the data that's coming to you, but interpret the data that's coming out of you mm-hmm. so that you're saying you get an idea and you say, okay, now is that – I'm going to do a biblical theology on this. Is this consistent with the biblical witness? Is it something that I really want to put out there or am I creating as the world does in its constant – you know striving and kicking against the goads mm-hmm. uh, is is there is there something in this that is that that is not only true but aesthetically pleasing that is going to help influence my culture for the cause of Christ and you can't it, you as a believer you have an infinitely deep well of creativity available to you through the person of the holy spirit and mm-hmm. and the lord jesus and the father all inhabiting so that what comes out has the potential to accurately reflect the big T truth. Mm-hmm. But what it but if we don't have this a biblical and theological understanding informing our production, mm-hmm. then we are, we're we're at loose ends. We're not sure how to compose all of this information, all of this wellspring of creativity. We're not sure how to package it, if I can use mm-hmm. a secular term, in a way that is going to be both aesthetically pleasing so that you make money at the box office, mm-hmm. because you do need to make a living mm-hmm. doing this, uh, and doesn't Preach in the bad sense doesn't doesn't take a soapbox, stand up on it, and scream at the society, but but gets the message across in a way that be, that is attractive and at the same time doesn't compromise our position. Uh, you've said things. I've
0: got about three different questions. I'm not sure which one to ask first. So I'm going to try and put one of them in a in a cache back here okay. and to go back to because uh, I do want to go there. But the, the, I want to ask you this. Um, when Christian writers write, you use the phrase soapbox. There is a sense in which uh, when you engage uh, – I'm going to use this model – the the challenge of the gospel is to offer an invitation in the midst of a challenge that says you can't fix yourself. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of offering that invitation, in the midst of that challenge, you're trying to get the person who doesn't have – Christian roots necessarily, Christian background. You're trying to get them to reflect on both how they live and how they can connect to a transcendent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now that said, that very abstractly, but my point is, is that there's a there's a tension there, and the 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 tension in doing that is if you're on a soapbox, you just tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna tell you what to do. It's not a conversation. That's right. It's not a conversation. But what you're saying is, is the arts in many cases to be effective at getting to reflection genuine reflection that reaches down and gets your gut uh has to has to um has to put it in such a way that it's i'm gonna say it this way that it's subtle that it that it that it leads you into reflection into pause as opposed to kind of slapping you in the face and is that is Is that a fair metaphor to be working with? Yeah, I think so. I think
1: it has to come out of reflection as well. That uh, when Betty Edwards was writing her book, uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, and she wrote a a companion volume to it, uh, Drawing on the Artist Within, Uh, both of them excellent books. And I I try to get my students in my writing course to to read those books that are art books because her technique is exactly what we're teaching here. In surveying uh, different creativity approaches and creative problem-solving approaches, she said in Western culture, the number one missing ingredient, whether it was a three-step program, a five-step program, ten-step program, didn't matter. The one missing ingredient was time for reflection. It was time for meditation in the composition of the art, whatever venue it was in and Mm -hmm. whatever form it took so what we what we need to do if we want people to reflect on our work is it needs to be born out of reflection it needs to be it needs to be born out of a careful consideration of all of the elements, how they go together, what we're saying, how we're saying it, how we package it, and then to pace it in a way that allows for reflection in situ—that is, in in the place where they encounter the art—but mm-hmm. also after after they encounter. So it has the an art.
0: impact. It has a lasting impact.
1: Yeah, exactly. It it, uh, it the great art. Like, if you go to see a Matisse or you, you go to see a, a Gauguin or, or a, another, another great painting artist, you go to see Mako Fujimura, you, you enter the exhibit space and you, you, you encounter it for the first time. You see water lilies for the first time, Monet's water lilies for the first time, the big one, mm-hmm. the, the huge one in New mm-hmm. York, and you say – Oh this this is incredible. This is great. And you stand there. Uh, most people stand in front of an average painting at the DMA at the Dallas Museum of Art for 6 seconds mm-hmm. and then they move on. Mm-hmm. It's that's not a reflective oftentimes. time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's me. How much I got to get through this exhibit? Well, they but the thing is that the great ones invite a return visit or a picture. Or a picture. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you want to own this in some kind of digital format or something that I can reproduce and put up over my couch so that I can look at it and reflect on it and appreciate different things about it along the way. My son Nick and I were in New York when he was little, really little, prior to reading age. Mm -hmm. We went down into the subway. We were on our way to the Met, to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And uh, for some reason, mom wasn't there. Uh, Lauren was doing something else with, with the other kids. It was just Nick and Dad. And we went down into the subway, and if you've been in the New York subways, which I know you have, yeah. <laughs> and you sometimes see things spray-painted on the walls that are not very nice. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a really bad thing spray-painted on the wall, but it was spray-painted in neon orange and green. And Nick went over to it, and he said, Dad. And I thought, oh, but mm-hmm. he couldn't read. Mm-hmm. He said, look at the pretty colors. Isn't it beautiful? And I said, yeah, Nick, that's pretty. Let's go get on the train, and we'll go look at some more pretty colors. So we got on the train, went over to the Met, got out, went in, and it was a, uh, it was a, a Monet exhibit. And we were, we were going in, and he was looking at a, one of the small versions of water lilies. Mm-hmm. And he, you know what he said? He said, Dad, look at the pretty colors. At that age, he didn't have the ability to distinguish or oh, yes. to discern, but I said, Nick, yes, pretty colors, but look, there are other things to appreciate about it. There's design, and there's order, and there's composition. I didn't use the word composition, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he, I wanted to invite him to Go beyond appreciate. the colors. Yeah, yeah, go beyond the colors. Yeah and and just see how much, how deeper and more three-dimensional this image was even though it was presented in a two-dimensional space than what he had seen down in the subway you know uh, and I don't want to
0: turn this into an
1: art appreciation
0: podcast, but you know, it strikes me things like the Mona Lisa. Most people walk up to the Mona Lisa when they see it for the first time, and they go, "I had no idea it was that small." Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they think because of its reputation and what they've heard about it, and the pictures they've seen, this must be a big painting. Yeah, and they walk yeah. in, and of course, what grabs you about the Mona Lisa is, is are the eyes. And uh, and and most great paintings that are portraits, there's something going on with the eyes, or there's something going on with the way in which the person is presented that draws you, and you go, I'm not just looking at a face. There's almost there's almost a soul that yes. I'm seeing as yes. I look at this, that that uh, that causes you to pause to the point where, of course, what they ask about the Mona Lisa, everyone asks, well, what is she thinking about? Which I always think mm. is a strange question to ask mm. of a painting, mm. you know. <laughs> How does paint think?
1: You know. I know, but isn't <laughs> yeah. it interesting that it engenders that? Yeah, exactly. That it invites that kind of reflection because the, it's the enigmatic smile, it's, it's what's going on in the eyes. What is she? It makes you ask the question. It invites you to participate. Join us next week for part 4 of the Table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth, love well.